in his book called The Reappearing Church, um, written by Mark, Mark Sayers, who's an Australian theologian, he makes a very compelling case that progress using secular methods has failed miserably. You know, crisis after crisis in the world, I think, supports that. It's exposed human dysfunction and corruption in all spheres of society. Big business, politics, education in our schools, um, sport, and even in the church. And it's not only at this big macro level. Our private worlds are in crisis too. We see a rise in anxiety, depression, loneliness, um, hatred, tribalism, online bullying, addiction to drugs, alcohol, technology, sex, relationships, entertainment and gambling are also on the rise. I think most people would realize that the world is not in a great state. Think of all the recent conflicts and wars that have broken out as well. And human attempts, as well-meaning as they are, to address these problems and arrive at a state of, of, of utopia have clearly failed. You know, now secular humanism and God share this desire for human flourishing. We all want human beings to flourish. But the approaches are very different. The approach of the world is to use progress, you know, to achieve this better state, to use technology, better social systems, uh, innovative maybe government, uh, to try and control big business, to incentivize, to form partnerships. And they all can contribute to a point, but the approach of progress isn't working. Now, God, on the other hand, wants human flourishing, but God doesn't use progress. God uses presence. It's the presence of God that's going to bring about a better world where human beings can flourish as we were designed to. Okay, so we're going to speak today about communities of presence. And just to remind you that in recent weeks we have been talking about God's desire for his church. We started off by explaining how God desires his church to be a house of prayer. We then spoke about how God's people should live lives of worship and have hearts to serve. And God's desire for his churches, local churches, is that we are communities of presence. When we speak of God's presence, we should start at the beginning, right? Genesis 1. So put on your seatbelts. We're going to go through the Bible pretty quickly today, but we're going to pause and stop at something that's really important considering the age we live in at the moment. Okay. So uh, Genesis 1 from 1 to 2, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So we have God's Spirit hovering over the waters. Uh, there's chaos, but God brings order to the chaos. He kickstarts creation. He creates elements which sustain life, and then he creates life with human beings at the apex of, of his creation, tasked to rule over creation as his image bearers, his representatives. Okay, most of us know that story reasonably well, right? Then let's go down to uh, chapter 2 from verse 26. 
sorry, it's still chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the, of the sky, the animals and the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the, on the earth. So God created man in his image. He created man in the image of God. He created them male and female. Okay, so God, God created us. He gave us lots of freedom with, with one boundary. The one boundary was that they were not to eat from a specific tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately, we read in Genesis 3 is where we read our Adam and Eve gave into this temptation. Um, you see, they wanted, they wanted to be like God. And right in that, that choice they made, we have, I think, a picture of what the world would do. And Adam and Eve, deep down, wanted to progress. They wanted to be better. They wanted to be like God. So I think that's the first example of, you know, the human tendency to, in our own strength, make decisions to get ahead, to get better. The, the worldview of progress to be better, rather than God's way of presence. So the consequences of the decision they made were huge. It was shattering. Um, it affected creation and it, it, it still does. God forced Adam and Eve to leave the garden. He banished them from the garden. There was separation. Um, Adam and Eve could no longer be God's image bearers. They couldn't fully represent God. And then death entered the picture. Okay, And those elements are still around us today. So God's full presence was no longer available to mankind. Now in the Bible, what is... What is the presence of God associated with? The temple. Okay. God's presence is associated with the temple. Now, we should be familiar with the tabernacle and, and the temple, uh, you, know, la- you know, the temple of God that he, that he established as his dwelling place on earth. The point being that God did not give up on his purpose. God did not give up on humankind, right? He has always been present. However, the presence is much more limited. And it's not as full and experienced by everybody as it was in, in the garden before sin entered the picture. Now, just some context here. The, um, this concept of temple wasn't invented by God. In the ancient Middle East, temples were common. Going back thousands and thousands of years, there were, there were temples to gods, pagan temples. And these temples were not only places to get together to worship God, they were sacred places where they believed that their God lived. And they would fill the temple with idols which represented the role of God in the universe. And the, their superstition caused them to continually serve God. They believed that their gods, if they weren't fed enough or treated properly, they'll get disinterested or tired, okay? Or if something went wrong, you know, if there was a crisis, if there was a flood or a famine, they thought the gods were angry with them and then they would make an extra effort to please the God, even to the point of human sacrifice. Now, God took that concept that the ancient world was very familiar with, which he often does, including creation accounts, and he gave his own creation account, 
He took that concept of temple and he turned it on its head. Okay, temples in the ancient, you know, in the pagan world were, were places of fear, exhaustion, superstition. But God's temple was always meant to be a place, a picture of human flourishing. To be a place of peace and justice and rest and being with God. Now, I just want to summarize a few differences between God's temple and pagan's temple. The temple is, God's temple is different in three important ways. God is really present. God is present. God's temple is the place where heaven and earth intersect. Secondly, as I mentioned, it is a flourishing and functioning life system, bringing justice and peace. And his temple, thirdly, has image bearers rather than idols. It's interesting that the Bible uses the same word. In Greek, it's icon. Icon is used for idol, and icon is used for image bearers. They serve the same purpose. The the idol is a representation of, of the God. Now, the difference between idols and image bearers is that idols in the ancient pagan temples were fashioned out of human hands. Therefore, they represented the image of their their human makers, in a sense, including their limitations and their failings. In contrast, God creates humans in his image, and he gives them a priestly role as, as his representatives to go and fill the world with his presence. Okay, difference. God creates his idols, image bearers in his likeness and in his image. Now, even before the fall was God's original temple. Um, It was a flourishing, functioning life system uh, between God and human beings. It was, you know, there was no separation between heaven and and earth. And as we will see in the story, is that God is busy returning us back to the state of Eden through his presence. Now, Eden was God's original temple, but temple takes different forms in the Bible. I'm going to go through this very quickly. Now, later on in God's story, we read how he sets apart Israel as his people. And when he made covenant with them, he promised, and read about this in Leviticus 26, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Okay, so his plan was always to dwell amongst his people. And as the Israelites wandered in the desert, God dwelled in a mobile tabernacle, right, uh, or tent. And later when the Hebrew people settled down in the promised land, they lived in fixed dwellings. God then dwelt in a fixed place, which was Solomon's temple. Now, sadly, just as Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, resulting in their exile out of Eden, Israel disobeys over and over again, causing God to desert his temple and to bring about another Exile of his people. Echoes of the fall and banishment from the garden. Then for a long time there is no temple on earth for God to dwell in. But God is not completely absent. From time to time he sends his spirit to raise up leaders. Think of Gideon. uh, To impart supernatural strength to people. Think of Samson. Uh, to provide special skills for his purpose. Think of the people who built the temple, how he gave them special skills. And also, by the way, gave them the ability to teach others, to make all the fancy you know, ornaments and furnishings for the temple. Um, he also uh, is present in his spirit through prophets, people he would raise up to speak on his behalf, to speak to his people. 
But we find during that time that God's Spirit doesn't stick around for very long. His presence is limited, it's very focused, and it's temporary. But God hasn't deserted us through that time when there is no temple. And the prophets he raised up spoke about a future time, a time in the future when Messiah would return, when God himself would return and rule justly, not just over Israel but over the whole world, and be physically present with them again. And those prophecies are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 2. Now, just a bit of background here. The section that we're going to read, uh, just before this, this is where Jesus goes into the temple and he upsets the commercial operations. He turns over the table of the, the money changers and the people selling animals, you know, to folk who want to sacrifice and worship. Um, and in the other Gospels, we read that Jesus quoted two scriptures. The one on Isaiah, he said, where God said, my temple is to be a, a house of prayer. And then secondly, Jesus quoted Jeremiah, who said that you have turned my temple into a den of robbers. Now, I explained um, when, we, when we covered this in the house of prayer that robbers there actually means rebels. You know, so God was upset because people were using his temple for their own agenda. They were rebels against God. Uh, Jesus comes, he, he upsets the commercial activities. This is the John account, John chapter 2. I'll read from verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Now back then, asking for a sign of authority, they wanted some evidence that Jesus, he had the authority to interfere with the temple activities. Okay, they wanted a sign. Jesus answered, Destroy this sanctuary or temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This sanctuary, this temple, took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Very clear that, you know, Jesus referring to this physical temple which had taken 46 years to build and they hadn't even finished building it. I think it took 60-something years. He obviously wasn't talking about the physical temple. He's talking about himself, you know, his death, burial, and resurrection. He would rebuild the temple in three days. So Jesus is saying, I am the temple. I am the true temple of God. I am the full presence of God, Emmanuel. Okay, I am the place where heaven intersects with earth. Now, after Jesus resurrected and ascended, um, who or what is God's temple? The church, right. We are the temple of God. And I just want to um, you know, re read a couple of passages here. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll read from verse 16 to 17. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone ruins God's temple, God will ruin him. For God's temple is holy and that is what you are. The you here is a collective you. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He's talking to a church. 
right? That we are collectively the temple of God. We are now the holy dwelling place of God's presence. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15 to 20, makes it clear that we are individually also little temples of God. And because of that, we've got to watch the way we treat our bodies. Okay, we've got to watch what we do with our bodies. We, our bodies are, are holy, they're set apart from God. So collectively and individually, we are temples of God. And you know the, the context of this 1 Corinthians 3, it's part of an extensive teaching on maintaining unity. And not letting the church get divided over loyalties to individuals you know, in the church. And you read, for example, that in verse 4 to 8. For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul and another, I'm with Apollos, are you not typical men? So what is Paulus and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed and each has a role you know, the Lord has given. And he, he continues you know, on this theme about how important it is not to follow individuals and not to have favorite people in the church. Right, that's just not being united. And then in this passage then, he just reminds them that you are God's temple. And, you know, if we are not united, we are no different to the world. That's what we've just read. We cannot live out, live out our purpose as God's image bearers. We, we, we are not going to be experienced as the, the presence of God if we are not treating each other properly, right? And if we are not united. You know, so God takes, you know, this seriously. He takes unity seriously. And then in verse 16 that I've just read, don't you know that you're God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God's presence in this age is through His Spirit. At a time he physically walked on earth, then he was present in the, in the temple. Jesus came phys- physically, the physical presence of God, and now God's presence is his spirit living in his church and in us individually. It's also clear from Ephesians 2 verse 21, in him you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. That we are being built into the temple, right? We're not a perfect temple. There's no church, there's no individual who is a perfect representation of God's presence amongst us. It's something we grow in. You know, it's something we are being transformed to do and to be. Uh, but it's, there still is a responsibility, obviously. You know, whenever, you know, I say that, I hope we don't think, oh, that's okay then. I don't have to like really take it too seriously. No, there's an expectation that God's spirit amongst us equips us. And challenge us, challenges us and brings about change and convicts us of things we need to change. And just interestingly, the Ephesians 2 also, context there is also about unity. In this case, unity between Jews and Gentiles. You know, it seems like unity is a really important sign that a church is a community of God's presence. You know, in that passage, that's where he speaks about the wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews will be broken down. By the way, you're the temple of God. You know, and I think any disunity between individuals and any disunity between groups of people um, undermines and undercuts our God-given purpose and calling, you know, to be his temple. And that's why, you know, as a church we speak a lot about being a, a family of all nations, a family of all people groups. Uh, to the extent that we can be, we should be representative of our city. 
Because when people are very different, socioeconomically, ethnically, age, etc., when people like that are family, you know, they love each other and take care of each other, they're working through differences, that is a picture of God's presence amongst us. Amen. Amen? So that's why I don't think it's a coincidence that in these main passages on God's presence amongst us as his spirit, the context is address divisions in your church. So the progression we've seen so far is God's temple presence is Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, Jesus, the church. These are different forms that God has used as his temple, his dwelling place on earth. But they all have a lot in common. It is the presence of God. They are meant to be little communities of flourishing humankind. Okay, they are meant to be communities of, of unity. And as the world divides on all sorts of things, we show the world through his temple, this collective light on the hill, what human beings were originally like in the, in the garden, in their relationship with God, and with one another before sin entered the picture. So form changes. Now in the words of Mark Sayer, the book I referred to, he says the church of God has form and fire. Okay, we, we, we could have used fire there for the spirit as well. Okay, so the dove, fire, you know, they're both common sort of symbols. The church as God's temple has form and it has fire. The form of the church as God's temple is, is the life of Jesus. The shape or the form of the temple. The life of Jesus is the way of the cross. The church is a cruciform temple. We are obedient to God. We love as Jesus loved. And we're sacrificial. Now all those things that motivated Jesus to go to the cross. Obedient, loving, sacrificial community. And as his image bearers, we are to go out and love people into his kingdom, laying down our lives for them. That's a cruciform community, laying down our lives for others. Remember the secular attempts I referred to in the beginning to, you know, that are not working to, to achieve a better world through progress? It's our cross-shaped presence that God wants. Cross-shaped presence trumps the best secular efforts at progress. The way of Jesus is the form of the temple and the spirit of Jesus is the fire. We need the fiery presence of the Holy Spirit and his strength to do what we cannot do on our own. We need his spirit to equip us, to empower us, to bring healing, to bring restoration to bring about God's vision of a flourishing community. We can't do that. We're not going to come up with a more innovative, better model of anything in the world. Okay? Even the smartest guys have tried. There are many of them. Progress has taken different you know, routes, um, different worldviews, well-meaning. But progress has hit a cul-de-sac. Okay? It is the presence of the Holy Spirit, God in the form of the Holy Spirit that is going to bring about human flourishing that we all want. When we speak about form and function, being a, sorry, form and fire, being a scientist, I, um, I was reminded of form and function. 
Uh, in a form and function, it's, a, yeah, it's an element of design as well, isn't it? Gary knows. But I'm going to speak as a scientist. Form and function go hand in hand. Uh, it refers to the direct relationship between the structure of a thing, the form, and the way it functions. And in creation, form and function are so interlinked. Look at a giraffe, right? A giraffe has a long neck. That's the form. Why? The function? So it can get leaves the top of high trees. Um, eagles have very strong, uh, sharp claws. Why? So that they can come down at 50 k's an hour and snatch prey off the ground and carry them away. My dog Dex has big, strong teeth. Why? To eat bones. And so we can carry on. If you look at God's good creation, form and function go hand in hand. You don't separate form and function. And it's the same with God's presence. We can't and shouldn't separate the form from the fire. The life of Christ and the example of Christ from the working of the Holy Spirit. We run into problems when we start separating the Spirit from Jesus. Okay. And that's what I'm going to speak about now. You know, so how does the Spirit direct, let's call it that, direct the temple activities? How does the Holy Spirit build us into a temple of God? What does His presence and His power look like? Now, um, I think nowadays there's a, a danger that we can focus on one and not the other. There are people who focus on um, the form. You know, we love focusing on studying our Jesus and what he did. And we don't always focus enough on the fire of the Spirit. The others that focus too much on the, the fire of the Spirit and don't understand the link with Jesus and how Jesus explains the role of the Holy Spirit. It's really important that we get balance, right? To engage head and heart is really important. Amen. So that's what I'm going to try and do uh, quickly. Yeah, so let, let's have a quick look at what Jesus said about the Spirit. And this was in his last conversations with his disciples. These are the words of Jesus. Okay, now the whole Bible is inspired, but especially when Jesus says something, I tend to sit up and take notice. So I actually have these slides, I thought, in the interest of saving a bit of time. In John 14, verse 16, this is the evening before Jesus is arrested. And he's having a, a final chat with his disciples. Uh, he's preparing them for, for when he is going to leave. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So Jesus says, I will send you another advocate. Now in 1 John 2, I don't think I've got this, I don't have this one up, read it. In 1 John 2, John refers to Jesus as the advocate. Exactly the same word. So when Jesus says, I'm going to send you another advocate, he's saying, man, I'm going to send you someone just like me. Okay, and that word advocate means, it can also be interpreted or translated as comforter, counselor, a few others, teacher, helper. But it literally means one who walks alongside you. Okay, so Jesus says, I'm going to, I've been walking alongside you for three years. You know me. I'm going to send someone else to walk alongside you. I'm going to send the Spirit. The way I, I really believe biblically we should understand the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Yeah, the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of Jesus continuing 
the work of Jesus on earth. Jesus then goes on to say it will be better that he sends the Spirit. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying, man, this is good news. Because I'm going to send another Advocate. And what's the difference between Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Jesus, Jesus could perform miracles. He could be anywhere, but he chose to be a human being okay, in his ministry. But the difference between Jesus and Holy Spirit is that Jesus could only be in one place at one time. The Holy Spirit can be everywhere all the time. Okay, God's Spirit is not limited by time, by space, or by material matter. So that's why it's better to have the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. I'm going to be with you, and I'm not going to be limited. And the Holy Spirit is what our church is built on. Now, the, the apostles certainly understood the Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. We read in Acts 16, verse 7, that's when Paul and his companions come to Mysia. They try to enter Bithynia, but we read, but the Spirit of Jesus would not let them go. The Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. It's as though Jesus was with them and said, hey guys, remember what Jesus would do? We're not going that way, we're going this way. Yeah, we're supposed to go there, but hey man, God's told me we're going this way. And it's like they just had a memory of Jesus being with them, directing their mission, their steps. In step with the Spirit, listening to the Spirit. So the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. That's how they experienced Him. In in Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul writing, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Excuse me, Paul, don't you mean the Spirit lives in you? The Christ lives in me. That's exactly how I experienced the Spirit, was like Jesus was living in him. Okay, so... The Holy Spirit continues the work of Jesus. I'm going to share this with, with, it, with you, church. I'm almost done. This is really something worthwhile studying out in your, your own time. Mainly the words of Jesus, but not only. We read, firstly, the Spirit brings truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And the truth that the Spirit represents is the Word of God and the words of Jesus. He helps us to pray. Jesus did that. He's an intercessor. He bears witness about Jesus. Oh, this is so important. And he glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not glorify himself. And the Holy Spirit definitely doesn't glorify you or me. You know, at the extreme end of the Pentecostal movement, I mean, there's so many common examples of this. It's all about the preacher, the apostle, the prophet. Am I right? And they end up worshipping him. And what happens invariably, often after the guys died, like the dude up in Nigeria, TB Joshua, I think the name is, then all the, the horrible sin and abuse comes out because they worshipped him. And they were charismatic, spirit-filled meetings. If there was a spirit present, it wasn't the spirit of God. Okay? When people, when people start getting worship and there's sin, clearly it's not the spirit of God. And obviously in a, in a very emotional, expressive experience, that's a sensual experience. And in often, I'm not saying always, but often churches at that extreme, if you dig in a little bit, the sensual becomes sexual. And you read about you know, pastors who divorce their wives or have affairs in the church, etc., etc. Okay? We've got to hold up, is this the spirit of Jesus? 
not just some emotional experience or something else that is causing you know, what, what, what I feel. He doesn't bear witness about himself. He doesn't want us to worship him. He shines, he shines the light on Jesus. The Spirit's job is to shine the light on Jesus, remind us of Jesus, do what Jesus did with his disciples. Glorifies Jesus, not himself or us. He convicts the world of sin. Very important. Jesus convicted the world of sin. He gives the ability to love. Romans 5.5. 5. You know, we read that when, when God pours his spirit into us, he pours his love into us. We cannot love, which is so critically important to be the presence of God. We cannot love as Jesus loved without the Holy Spirit. He imparts courage. We need courage, don't we? You know, to witness, to, to bear witness to Jesus the way um, the Spirit wants us to. He gives self-control or discernment. He helps, un- he helps the understanding of Scripture. Once again, be rooted in, in Scripture, be rooted in the King. He facilitates connection with God, similar to prayer. He reminds us of the words of Jesus. He imparts gifts to edify the church, the spiritual gifts. He brings unity, we've seen that. And he transforms us into Christ-likeness. He brings about new creation. The Spirit was present, hovering over the world before God started creation. And we read that he is, he is the Spirit of new creation. He brings about new life in us. Now, God is God. So we can't you know, say that God doesn't work in any other ways. Um, he does. Um, he gives visions to people. He, Nolene heard his voice clearly in our back garden and wrote down what he said. I, God gave me at one stage, I won't go into details, but a very vivid picture of sin going on in the church. I knew who it was. I knew the building. I knew the room. And I knew where he was. And I, I just absolutely knew I had to go there, right? He used me as a church leader to expose sin. Things happen. You know, but even those sort of things are what I see Jesus doing. Okay, so form and function, sorry, form and fire are closely linked. God's temple is about form and fire. It's Jesus-shaped cruciform, and the spirit is very interlinked and intertwined with Jesus. We cannot separate Jesus from the spirit. The spirit is a spirit of prophecy, and that's another word that's maybe misunderstood. Um, but John Piper is, I think he's called a moderate charismatic. He's also a Calvinist, which is quite interesting, his doctrine. But he certainly believes in the word of God. And he, he has said that he, he, he experiences prophecy when the Holy Spirit gives him something to say he didn't plan to say, when it's not in the notes. And I think that we must be open to that as well. Whether you're speaking or preaching or if you have a meeting with someone, plan for it a bit, but be open to how God's Spirit will, will speak and wants to use that setting. Amen. Amen. I just want to use that as a, uh, just to show that I'm not, I'm not overly rigid, right? God's Spirit works, but if it's not linked to this, not aligned with the nature and the character and the mission of Jesus, then Test it. We've got to test the spirit. Revelation 21, 1, 2, 3. Almost done. This is a picture of, of, of the new heaven and the new earth. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no longer. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for, for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Listen to this. Look, God's dwelling is with men. Yeah, that God's dwelling is with men. Temple language. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Where did we read that? In Leviticus, when he was preparing them for the temple. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will cease, will exist no longer, because the previous things have passed away. Picture of human flourishing. We all want a world like that, don't we? How do you do it? God dwelling amongst us. Presence, not progress, as we define progress. And then in Revelation 22, we start with the first book in the Bible, and we end, the first chapter in the Bible, we end with the, the last chapter in the Bible. Um, I'm going to read from verse um, 22. Oh, here we go. It's from verse 1. I got confused because I'm using Nolene's Bible and the subheadings are different to mine. Yeah, your, your preacher forgot his Bible at home. I mean, sorry. Let me just confess that. <laughs> it's called the source of life. In your, in your Bible, it might be called Return to Eden. Then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the broad street of the city. On both sides of the river was the tree of life. Tree of life, right? As in the garden. Bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for, the healing, for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. Now, once again, picture of Eden. God's presence. Flourishing life. All the problems in the world as we experience them that are cause so much so much hurt, so much dysfunction, so much pain, so much death, so many wars, so many conflicts, all of that will be gone when God returns and we walk with God in his good creation. From Eden to tabernacle to temple to Jesus to the church to the restored Eden. That is what we as, commun- as a community, community of presence, believes in and we live out. And we anticipate the return of Jesus and the return to Eden. That, the presence of God, the presence of God will bring about flourishing human life that we all, that we all desire. Amen.